This past Wednesday, we had the honor as a country to be able to remember those who have served in the armed forces in any particular capacity. I'm always grateful for Veterans Day, specifically in my family. My father, who is likely watching right now, uh, is a, a veteran of the Air Force. My, my stepdad, who is also likely watching right now, is a Navy veteran, and then my grandfather, who passed away several years ago, uh, was a World War II pilot. So Veterans Day has always been extremely significant and special in my life, taking on even a, another level of significance this year when my wife and I, just about a year ago, uh, stood and watched our son, who, uh, who pledged his life for the next six years to serve our country there in the United States Navy. And so we want to take some time today to recognize those who are here in our sanctuary this morning and also those who are watching online who served in the armed forces. And so if you're watching online, we would love it if you would just kind of pop up on the YouTube there and let us know uh, that you served or maybe you've got somebody in your family that served that you want to do that. Um, and if you're in this room today and you served our country in the armed forces in any capacity, we would be honored if you would stand so that we could recognize you today as well. So if you served, would you please stand? Thank you very much for your service. I'm just kind of reading on here. I've got several that are, that are jumping in this morning and uh, sharing how they've had fathers and, and, and uh, uncles and several others who have served. So thank you very much for serving in that capacity. Um, as you got a copy of God's Word, I'm going to ask you to open Luke chapter 7. We're going to look at a text in just a few minutes under the, under the title today of Where Christ Is, Hope Lives. And so we're going to be looking at, a, at an encounter that happened in Jesus' life in Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. As you're turning there, I wanted to tell you it's my honor to announce to you that next Sunday we will have a guest speaker here very good friend of mine by the name of Chris Mobbs. Chris serves as our Director of African Operations for Abana's Hope, which is a ministry of Four Corners Ministries, of which I am honored to be able to serve on the Board of Directors. Um, Chris has become a very dear friend of mine over the last several years, and I've had the opportunity to, to be there in Africa and serve alongside of him. Um, and so Chris and his family are home on what we call stateside assignment. They've been there for over two years now in this last capacity and have come home to get some rest and to spend some time with family and to re-engage uh, some of their uh, sponsors. And when he was preparing to come home a few weeks ago, he said, hey, look, I'm trying to put my calendar together. We definitely want to be there at Central Park and see the people there at your church. And we, we figured, figured the best time to do that was right now while we are doing an emphasis on missions and why we give to the harvest offering. So next Sunday he will be here and you'll want to hear from him. He's going to, be a, he's going to bring God's word for us and also give us some updates on some of the things that God is doing there in Africa uh, and how the hope of the gospel is spreading even in the midst of the same kind of coronavirus struggles that we're dealing with. So I invite you to be here uh, to hear Chris. I know that it will be a blessing to you, so please do so. Um, Today we're going to continue in our series that we began last week called Hope for a Hurting World, which serves as our 2020-2021 harvest offering theme. Now this theme, Hope for a Hurting World, comes from a verse that we looked at last week, and 
in uh, Romans chapter 15 and also in Matthew chapter 12, which says that in His name, in the name of Jesus, the Gentiles will hope. And we talked about how the word Gentiles in the New Testament is a reference to those who are without God, those who are without Christ, those who do not know Him. And Isaiah the prophet declared that those who do not know Christ, those who who do not understand Him or have a relationship to Him, will find hope in Him. We looked at Romans chapter 15 last week and several prophecies that were made about Jesus and Saul, how in each of one of these things it, it, it gives a call for us as followers of Jesus Christ to take the hope of Christ to those who do not know Him. And we talked about last week how that we live in a hurting world that is searching frantically for hope. More than any other time, probably in most of the lifetimes of those of us who are in this place today, we see clearly that the world on which we currently occupy is a world of great pain, great disillusionment, great brokenness. I've heard over and over, over the course of the last year especially, but even over the course of the last couple of years, how people have said, you know what, Brother Matt, I just don't, I don't know that it's been any worse in my lifetime than it seems to be right now. The brokenness in our world, the pain in our world, the division in our world, um, and even with this coronavirus that has attacked our, our entire planet over the course of the last eight months, um, it just seems like more than ever the, that, that the world in which we live in is showing its brokenness. But we need to remember that the reality is that it's been this way ever since Genesis chapter 3 and the fall of Adam and Eve. Brokenness is not just something that happened in, in the 19th or 20th century. It's something that's been going on for thousands and thousands and thousands of years because at that moment, when our first parents took what had been banned for them and made a willful decision to spurn God's law, at that moment the world and everything in the world experienced a massive and cataclysmic break from the original glory in which God had created all things and for which they existed. In that particular moment when Adam and Eve took that which had been forbidden to them, everything in this world broke. And it's not only massively broken in the way that the world operates, but there's also a brokenness inside of all of us who inhabit this planet. We are broken people. Our bodies don't work the way they were originally designed to work. And eventually, our bodies will deteriorate to the point that they cannot sustain life in this world anymore. Our hearts that were created to love God and to love and give Him glory and to love one another, our hearts are broken. And they are now wired to pursue things that, that may promise us fulfillment but really can't deliver. Our relationships, which were designed to be mutually encouraging and affirming, are broken because instead of finding ways to serve one another, instead of finding ways to love our neighbor as ourselves, Eventually, all of us eventually use people to serve us. And the reality is that we're broken. Brokenness is the reality. Pain and hurt and disillusionment will be the inevitable result. When, 
when people and systems don't work the way they are supposed to, the end result will always be pain, it will always be hurt, it will always be frustration, it will always be grief. Because we live in a hurting world that is a broken world. And last week we said that the scriptures make it clear that the only hope for a hurting world is the Lord Jesus Christ. He literally is the only hope that we have for a hurting and broken world. I made this statement last week, and that is that broken systems and broken stuff and broken people cannot fix broken people. So the answer to our brokenness is not in accumulating more stuff in our lives that it will eventually turn to rust and dust and will not last. That's not the answer to our brokenness. The answer to our brokenness is not in getting the right people in our lives who will love us through our brokenness because broken people can't fix broken people. The answer to our brokenness is not in getting the right person elected to public office because if anything that 6,000 years of recorded human history has displayed for us, it is that all governments eventually fail because all governments are led by sinful, broken people. And we need to embed this truth in our hearts that broken systems and broken stuff and broken people cannot fix our brokenness. So this is the reason why missions is a core conviction for me as a pastor and a core conviction for us as a church is because we believe that the only thing that can fix brokenness is the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus is the only hope for a hurting world. We believe that only Jesus can pick up the Humpty Dumpty pieces and put us back together again the way that God intended. And so we, as the people of God who've been redeemed, who've been saved, who have found our brokenness healed by the hope of Christ, we need to do whatever it takes to take the gospel across the street and around the world. The reason why we set aside a time to look at God's Word and to pray over a yearly offering for missions is because the harvest offering is our primary funding mechanism as a church to accomplish the great commission of our Lord Jesus Christ to spread the hope of the gospel to a hurting world. And as we said last week, we saw that it is God's heart for the Gentiles to find hope in Christ. Today I want us to look at a passage that takes place early in Jesus' ministry in Galilee because I believe of all the passages in the Gospels, this one probably demonstrates most vividly the truth that where Jesus Christ is, there is always hope. Where Jesus is, hope lives. And I want us to see today that the presence of Christ can bring hope to any and every Situation. Now, before we read the passage today, I need to just set for you a little bit of the context. This passage, this encounter, likely happens very early in the ministry of Jesus there in Galilee. Luke has already told us that Jesus has begun a ministry of healing and a ministry of teaching that has resulted in great attention being focused on Him and great crowds beginning to follow Him. From those crowds, He picked 12 men who would he would designate as apostles to whom he would would invest himself and disciple and eventually to whom he would give ministry responsibilities. He also had already had a great crowd that he had taught in Luke chapter 6, what Luke records as the Sermon on the Mount that we know in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. 
from the end of that teaching of that great crowd there, as he's departing from that area, he, he comes into the area of Capernaum where he finds a, a Roman centurion, a Roman official, a, a Gentile Roman soldier who has heard about Jesus and heard about the miracles that he performs. And he comes to Jesus and he says, I have a, I have a servant in my home who means a lot to me. He's a very valued member of our family and he is, he is very sick and dying. And I would like for you to come to my house and heal him. And Jesus praises and commends this soldier and even says, I have not found this kind of faith in all of the nation of Israel. And Jesus heals that man from a distance. He doesn't even go to the soldier's home. He just simply says, he will be healed. Whatever you've asked for, it's going to be done. He's going to be healed. And that man's servant was miraculously healed even without Jesus being in the room. And that brings us to the incident that happens next in Luke chapter 7. As Jesus leaves that village of Capernaum and begins to head towards some of the smaller villages in the, in the region of Galilee. And as he does so, he comes across a funeral procession. And I want us to pick that up here today in Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. It says, Soon afterwards he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died and was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. What happens when Jesus goes to a funeral? Funerals are very cathartic moments in our lives. They are continual reminders to us that this planet that we inhabit is not our final destination. Funerals are death's way of constantly taunting us and reminding us that the end of our earthly lives is imminent and eventual. Funerals are often moments of great grief, but they are also often moments that can bring instant perspective to life. You see, when you're at a funeral, the sales report is not suddenly quite as important as it was the day before. When you're at a funeral, you don't think about your child's report card if your child is the one who is sitting in that casket. And I've heard a lot of conversations at funerals, but I've never heard anyone at a funeral who is stressing about the cleanliness of the house or the condition of their yard. See, funerals have this, this very odd way of bringing an eternal perspective that most of us lack every single day. Funerals are a reminder to us that God has a purpose in death, in the cessation of our life. As a matter of fact, the scriptures help us to understand that death is a gracious gift from God to His children because death reminds us that we don't have to spend eternity in a sin-filled, wrecked, and broken world. 
But death is also a judgment on those who live without Christ and one that ushers them into the full consequences of their choices to live without regard for God. The Bible tells us that sin and death are inextricably linked to one another. In Romans chapter 5 it says, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. And one of the troubles that we often experience with funerals is that very few of us know what to say in that moment. We feel hopeless. We recognize that there's little that we can do to ease the suffering or to fix the situation. But this text reminds us today that that's not the case with Jesus. You see, when Jesus Christ encounters a funeral, He always brings hope. Where Jesus is, hope lives. And I want us to see today three things that happen when hurt and Jesus collide. The first of those is I want us to see the pain of a hopeless situation. And as we read these verses, we feel the very terrible pain that existed in that moment. In verse 11, it says, Soon afterwards he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Most of us have experienced the terrible pain of suffering and death on some capacity or at some level. And the older we get, the more it seems like sickness, death, and funerals are an unwelcomed reality. Amen? When someone in this world loses their life, it is a deeply painful moment. And usually the death of a friend or a loved one is accompanied by a lot of crying and visible grief. When we stand there in that moment, there's an emptiness inside of us and a deep personal void that is instantaneously left when someone we love and cherish leaves this world. It's also the same pain that can exist when we watch loved ones who go through prolonged periods of personal suffering. Moments such as when cancer and disease ravage someone's body can be deeply painful for everyone involved. And it's in those moments that we begin to frantically search for hope. We begin to look for hope for a cure, hope for a miracle. I've had moments where people pray, mom, dad, husband, son is about to die and we're praying frantically for a miracle to happen. In this particular woman's life that we read today, that hope had vanished. She had no hope in that moment. Her son had died, and in that moment there was no more hope left that she could get another kiss on the cheek from him. There was no more hope that they would sit down and share a meal together. And there was no more hope that one day she would feel his warm embrace again. This woman was a completely wrecked woman in that moment. Not only had she lost her son, but the scriptures tell us that she also had lost her husband previously as well. She had already walked this very familiar road to the cemetery before when she buried her husband. She knew the painful steps of this road well from personal experience, but she never in her life imagined that she would have to walk it again with her son. 
She was wrecked in that moment. Not only that, but the Bible tells us that she was destitute. Because not only is she a widow, but now she's lost the only son that she has. She's lost all the people in her life who would be responsible to care for her. She had no means for personal income. The text doesn't give us any suggestion that she had a trade that she could offer. And she has no immediate family who can take her in and care for her. She is personally broken and wrecked. She is personally destitute, but even worse, she is completely lonely. It's interesting that Luke says that a considerable crowd from the town was with her. This likely demonstrates that this woman and her son were well known in the town. But while she is surrounded in that moment by dozens of friends and townspeople, she has never felt more lonely than she does right then. Some of you can relate to that feeling because you remember what it was like to stand in a funeral line being consoled by dozens of people and yet feeling in that moment like you were all alone, wondering what you're going to do next. And if you haven't felt that pain before, get ready because that pain is coming to you. And I believe that, that Luke is inspired by the Holy Spirit to record this event for us for a couple of reasons. One, I believe that the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us here as followers of Jesus that you and I need to watch for the broken people that God puts in our path. You and I need to watch for the broken people that God places in our path. As I said before, this was not the first funeral that Jesus or His disciples likely had encountered, and we know that it won't be the last. In just a few verses, we're going to see Jesus raise the daughter of a synagogue ruler named Jairus from the dead. A young lady who was deathly ill, who eventually died before the Lord could get to her, and the Lord goes in and raises her from the dead. And a few passages after that, the Lord Jesus will encounter the death of a very close personal friend named Lazarus. You see, Jesus encountered hundreds of broken people in his three-year ministry on this earth. Blind people like Bartimaeus, lepers, the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, the sinful woman at the well, the adulterous woman in John chapter 8. Each and every one of these people were broken, hurting people. And each and every time Jesus encountered brokenness, he doesn't avoid it, he doesn't ignore it, he steps in and he offers healing. I believe that the Spirit continues to remind us of these passages in the Gospels to help us to understand that as followers of Jesus Christ, it is going to be natural and inevitable that we are going to encounter broken people on our journey. And when God places broken people in our path, He doesn't do so for us to ignore or turn our eyes away or walk away from. He gives them to us for us to engage in the hope of the Gospel. As followers of Jesus, God will place broken people in our path because you and I were once spiritually broken people who have found the healing of the gospel. And we need to watch for those people that God places before us. We don't need to be afraid of the brokenness in others. Yeah, sometimes we don't know what to say. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to engage it. But we don't need to be afraid of brokenness because we, of all people, have the hope of Christ that heals each and every broken situation. 
The second lesson that we learn from this narrative is that no matter what your situation, Jesus is always bigger than your brokenness. What could be more desperate, what could be more final than a funeral? And yet Jesus demonstrates in this moment that He is not immune to our pain, He is not ignorant to our plight, He is not deaf to our prayers, and He is not impotent to provide the answers that we need. Jesus is always bigger than your brokenness. Just like He did with this woman in the time of her greatest grief, and just like only Jesus can and has the right to do, He can intercede in our brokenness and says, Do not grieve. The Word of God also in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 reminds us that as followers of Jesus Christ, while we walk through this world of brokenness, we will grieve, but we do not grieve like those who have no hope. When we encounter brokenness, it grieves our heart, but we don't grieve in a hopelessness or as if every situation is a hopeless situation because we understand that our hope transcends this world even when our present circumstances do not. And so we see the pain of a hopeless situation encountered by the Lord Jesus Christ, which demonstrates for us the second truth, which is the power and the hope that Christ brings. In verses 13, we see, When the Lord saw this woman in this funeral procession, the Bible says He had compassion on her. And He said to her, Do not weep. And then He came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still, and He said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. In this passage, we see the beautiful and tender compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ to our personal brokenness. The Bible says... In verse 13, when he saw this woman's desperate plight, he had compassion on her. The word that, that the root word that Luke uses for compassion here refers to being moved in the gut, in the viscera of our bodies. It means to feel a deep sense of, of hurt and pain in our hearts, in our gut, in our liver, in our lungs. It is an emotion with deep physical effect. It wasn't just that Jesus saw this woman and He had pity on her. It wasn't just that He felt sorry for her. Jesus felt agony in His gut in that moment because He understood the terrible plight that that woman was in. And what comfort it brings to us to hear that the Lord Jesus feels the pain of our brokenness in the deepest parts Isaiah wrote of the Lord, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We do not carry our sorrows alone in this world. The Lord Jesus carries them with us. The writer of Hebrews says, We do not have a high priest that cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. We don't have an unsympathetic Savior. Jesus does something unthinkable and completely shocking at that particular moment. As he and his disciples and whatever other crowd were with him stop in respect to this funeral procession that's going by, most of us would stand there and watch the procession go by. We would feel sorrow. We would feel grief for that woman. (coughs) But we would watch it as it continues to go. 
But instead, Jesus literally steps up to the funeral and stops the funeral in its tracks. And not only that, but he says to the woman, do not weep. He told her not to cry, which at that particular moment would seem to be something completely insensitive. To walk up to a grieving widow who's lost her only child and to say, don't weep, don't cry. But Jesus goes beyond that. The Bible says that he intervenes. The Bible says that Jesus went up and touched what's called the beer. Now, the beer would have been a plank that was stretched between two poles upon which the body of this young man sat. On top of that would be his body, and it would be wrapped in a mixture of clothes, or cloths, and spices that were designed to preserve the body from decay until the grave could be dug and the body transported to it. And Jesus stops in that moment and he places his hand on that which is carrying the dead body of this, of this young boy. That was not only unthinkable in that particular moment, it would have been considered scandalous. Let me tell you why. For Jesus to touch that which was carrying a dead body instantaneously would make him ceremoniously unclean by Jewish law. It was forbidden by the law for anyone to touch a dead body, and if you touched a dead body, then you had to go through a series of intense physical and ceremonial washing and wait many days before you could enter the synagogue or participate in feast. And yet Jesus stops and touches the, 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 the beer, touches that which is carrying this young man's body, and immediately everybody watching him said, why would he do that? Because now he is unclean. But he does so because he's demonstrating for us a very powerful truth, which is this. Jesus is not hindered by our contamination in life. Jesus is in the process of bringing about our resurrection. He's not hindered by our contamination. Jesus is in the process of bringing about our spiritual resurrection. You see, what, what contaminates us doesn't contaminate Jesus. What makes us unclean doesn't make the Lord Jesus unclean. Jesus brings clean from that which is unclean. And what that man needed at that moment was not someone who was worried about ceremony or ritual. What that young man needed was life. And the only thing that could change that young man's circumstances and his mother's grief was a miracle. And so Jesus did that. You see, the scriptures tell us that all of us are on a death march of some sorts. The Bible says that every person on this planet is born dead in our trespasses and sins. And the power of sin and the power of death hover over us as the stench of our rotting souls fills the air. And then the Lord Jesus comes to bring a divine intervention. He wants to stop our spiritual funeral procession in its tracks and work for you and me a supernatural miracle. He wants to demonstrate that your sin and your circumstances are not too big for God to deal with. You see, what broken people in a broken world need is not empty religion. What broken people in a broken world need is a spiritual resurrection. And this is why missions and evangelism are crucial. Because the truth is that every person that you and I encounter in this world is on a death march to the grave. 
And while you and I will encounter dozens of people in the next 24 hours, they may not be physically dead, but the majority of them, the Bible says, are spiritually dead. And as such, they live without any real hope beyond this world. And Jesus places those people in our path so that we can share with them the hope of Christ and so that we can see them resurrected from spiritual death to spiritual life. I put in your notes here that real change will not come in our world until the disciples of Jesus Christ display genuine compassion and action. We lament the brokenness of our world. We lament what's happening in the world in which we live. And we wonder, when is it going to change? But the scriptures make it clear that real lasting change will not come in our world until the followers of Jesus Christ begin to get some personal compassion and some gospel action to share the hope of Jesus with a lost and hurting world. And we're not just talking about giving money to missions. We're talking about personally and purposefully sharing Jesus Christ with the lost that God sends in our way every single day. Last year, we issued a challenge for every person at Central Park Baptist Church called the Who's Your One Challenge. And we ask every person to pray about and to think about one person in your life who needs the gospel, who needs the hope of Jesus Christ. We said not every person can, no, no one person can win everybody to the Lord. And the vast majority of us can't win hundreds of people to the Lord probably. But everyone can win one person to the Lord, one family member, one neighbor, one friend that you've had for years. Every Christian should be able to name at least one person in their life right now who is spiritually broken and lost. And we ask you to pray for that person regularly and to look for an opportunity to share Jesus with them at least one time. So how are you doing with your one? Did you ever identify one? Did you ever write a name down on a card or on a post-it note in the front of your Bible? When was the last time that you prayed for your one? When was the last time that you prayed for them to be saved? Has God brought that person across your path? Have you had an opportunity to speak the hope of, the, of Christ and the gospel into their lives? You can't win everybody, but everybody can win somebody. And increasingly, polls and surveys show that the vast majority of those of us who profess faith in Jesus Christ never share the gospel with one person in a 12-month time period. Very few church members willingly pray for the salvation of lost people on a regular basis. We may offer up a prayer once a year or every once in a while, but we don't strategically pray for lost people. You know, it's real simple in the world and technology. You have a smartphone, you can set a timer on your calendar on your phone that goes off every single day or every single week at a specific point in time that alerts you to pray for your, for your lost people in your life. It's real simple. And yet we don't do it. How many spiritual funeral processions go by us every single day and we silently let them go by? not saying or doing anything. Real change won't come until we as the disciples of Jesus Christ begin to display genuine compassion for the lost and real action to engage broken people with the gospel. But thirdly and finally, I want us to see the praise and the celebration that happens with gospel transformation. 
when this young man was raised from the dead, the Bible says in verse 16, fear seized all of them. I think so. You can imagine that moment, wouldn't you? You're, you're grieving with this family and walking out to a funeral procession like you've done dozens of times before, expecting to, to bury this body and to go back home. And all of a sudden, the stranger and a few people stop and this man lays hands on the, on the beer and begins to say, young man, arise. And all of a sudden, this dead boy sits up. I think all of us would understand fear would seize us in that particular moment. And then they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and also saying, God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. This passage is a beautiful passage because it shows for us that Jesus Christ can change a funeral into a party in an instant. Imagine being an eyewitness of that event. Imagine being those who are walking with Jesus And one minute you see this funeral procession coming, playing a funeral dirge. And the next minute, the funeral procession is playing, oh, happy day. Maybe the man himself began to say, I was sinking deep in sin. Far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry, and from the waters lifted me, now safe am I. Love lifted me, love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. We see this in your notes, that the power of the gospel will lead to two inevitable natural responses, and that is worship and witness. When the power of the gospel is on display, it will always lead to the worship of God and to the witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see fear come upon every, all these people, a holy fear at the power of an awesome God. We see glory as they begin to glorify God because it becomes abundantly clear that only the power of God could bring the dead to life. And we see this, this chatter, we see this, this kind of spiritual gossip all of a sudden as the work of God before them led to the spread of the message of the gospel around them. You can imagine what would happen when You In that day and time when you saw someone raise someone from the dead, you can imagine how that report would spread and how people's attention and focus would turn to Jesus. The very natural response of the power of the gospel is always worship of the Lord Jesus and witness to those who need to hear. True gospel transformation always results in fervent gospel proclamation. And I pray that we at Central Park Baptist Church can be a people who are passionate again about seeing God's transforming power in our church and see it broadcast everywhere we go. I want to be a part of a church where lives are being transformed on a regular basis and where we see people giving testimony in the baptism waters every single week to the life-transforming power of the gospel. And it's possible Because the power of the gospel in us always leads to worship of the Lord Jesus and witness to a lost and dying world. We live in a world of immense brokenness, immense sin, immense pain and hurt. We live in a world of great challenge and great suffering in a world that is searching for hope. And we, the church, know that Jesus Christ is the hope for a hurting world. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes?
Before we leave this morning, I want to remind you again that there are two types of people that are in this room this morning. There are two types of people that are watching on our live stream today. The Bible says there are two types of people. There are people who are spiritually dead in their sins, and there are people who have been spiritually resurrected by the Lord Jesus Christ. This boy represents both of those in this story because he's a person who was dead, who was brought back to life. And so every person listening to this message today is either spiritually dead in your sins or you've been spiritually resurrected by the power of the gospel. And if you're spiritually dead in your sins, what you need is not religion. What you need is not a lecture. What you need is the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning or you're watching online and you don't have the hope of the gospel, you don't know what it's like to be forgiven of your sins, to know that the record of your sins and the things that you've done have been paid in full, and that you've been raised from spiritual death to a brand new spiritual hope in life. If you do not know that, we want to give you the opportunity to surrender your heart and life to Jesus today. Perhaps Holy Spirit speaking to you, revealing to you your spiritual condition. And if you're in this room before you leave, I would be honored to sit down with you for a few moments and share with you how you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you belong to Jesus Christ. If you're not here, you're watching online, there's a there's a, a phone number and an email address on the screen that you can, that you can contact me and, and say, I'd love to sit down and talk with someone about the Lord Jesus. But if you're spiritually dead, don't leave here today without the hope of the Lord Jesus. And if you're in the other group, if you've been spiritually raised, if you're, if you're raised in Christ, if you know the hope of the gospel, then what are you doing with it? Because we, as, the, as those who've been changed by the gospel, have been given the task of taking the hope of Christ to a hurting world. We do that by giving money to missions, but we do that by doing more than that. We do that by praying for lost people, and we do that by encountering the spiritual funeral processions that God places in our path every single day. If you would pray this week, God, send somebody my way who needs to hear the hope of Christ, I have found that that is a prayer that Jesus will answer almost every time. So will you pray that and will you look for those that God places in your path? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much today for the power of this story. We thank you for the truth that where Jesus is, hope lives. That there's no such thing as a hopeless situation when Jesus enters the room. So, Father, we pray for those that are hurting in this world. We pray for those that are without Christ, that are, that are our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers. Father, help us to be ambassadors of the hope of the gospel to them. We pray for those who are without Christ, who, li who, are, who are living in some of the areas where we have strategic mission partnerships in Uganda and in Guatemala and in Maryland and in many other places in Cincinnati. Father, we pray for those who are without hope that you would work through our gospel partners to spread the hope of Christ to them. I pray for anyone who's in this room today who does not have the hope of the gospel, that you would give them the faith to believe and the courage to step out and respond. Father, we thank you that you are always the hope for a hurting world and help us to be the ambassadors of that hope. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thanks again for joining us. Uh, if you need a harvest offering envelope, you can pick those up at the, at the offering box. If you brought one today, you can place that in the offering box and we'll add that to our collection. Um, don't forget about our prayer time at 5.30 tonight. So if you want to come in here and pray over our Christmas child boxes, uh, we'll have that set up and ready to go. Other than that, you're dismissed and we hope that you have a wonderful, blessed day.